if all behavior is about a desire to escape discomfort, that means therefore that time management is pain management. You do not control your feelings. Many people don't understand this. You're not responsible for your urges. You are only responsible for how you respond to those urges, hence the term responsibility. So if you think about it, it's like asking someone to control the urge to sneeze. You cannot control the urge. You already have the urge. What you can do is what you decide to do with that urge. Are you going to sneeze all over everyone and get them sick? Or do you take out a tissue and cover your face? But for me, that's not the kind of life I want to live. I would much prefer to live a life that I decide how I spend my time versus somebody else. Because look, the fact of the matter is, if you don't decide for yourself, somebody will decide for you. Your boss, your kids, the news media, the politicians, the social networks, the video game companies, somebody is going to decide how you spend your time unless you make a conscious choice to live it according to your values. I don't agree with the premise of the social dilemma that, oh my God, it's hijacking your brain and it's addicting everyone. Come on, that is so disempowering and so untrue. Really, there's so much we can do right now as opposed to waiting for the senators and congressmen and geniuses in Washington to do something about it. Why don't we do something about it right now? Why would we wait? You have to turn your values into time, right? So many of us, we say, oh, we value our health. But do you have a bedtime? Do you have time for exercise? Do you have time in your day for those things? Oh, we value our relationships. But do you have time for the most important people in your life? Is it in your schedule or do you just give them whatever scraps are left over? Hey everybody, what's good? Welcome back to the Next Move podcast. And if this is your first time on the show, we're a podcast that shares the strategies, stories, and tools of people who are making an impact in their field. And today I have Nir Ayal with me. And if you've been living under a rock and don't know who he is, he's the author of Hooked, which is a book on how to build habit-forming products. And this book lies on the shelves of some of the major tech companies on the planet, and as well as mine, but I doubt that's something that Nir tells his friends about. Um, and he's also more recently the author of Indistractable, which is kind of the antidote to Hooked, and is a book on how to control your attention and choose your life. And the reason why I love Nir as an author is because his books are so incredibly and uniquely action-packed. Virtually on every single page of his books, there's something that you can control, copy, paste into your life and start implementing from them. And this podcast is also going to be very action-packed where we're going to be talking about the root causes of distraction, as well as how you can avoid distraction to achieve what you want to achieve. And I didn't mean to sound so self-help there, but Nir, I'm so happy to have you on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Let's get straight into it. Um, the first thing that I really ponder every single time that I pick up my phone, especially after reading your book, Indistractable, is what is that feeling that is making me turn to my phone? Because even when I'm trying to analyze it, I don't really know what it is. So could you kind of go into what, what you call the itch or internal triggers? It's a bad feeling is what it is. It's uh, what, what we call an internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that most distraction, we tend to blame the external triggers, the pings, the dings, the rings, 
the things outside of us. But what we know is that most distraction does not originate outside of us, but rather most distraction begins from within. It is a desire to escape discomfort that drives us towards distraction. It's not a character flaw. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't have a short attention span. It just means that you don't have the tools to deal with that emotional discomfort of loneliness, boredom, uncertainty, fatigue, fearfulness, uh, whatever the case might be, you don't have the tools to deal with that discomfort in a healthy way uh, that can lead you towards the things you want to do rather than the distractions. So this brings us to the conclusion, if all, uh, if all behavior is about a desire to escape discomfort, that means therefore that time management is pain management that we have to recognize this fact that the reason we are looking for distraction, the reason we try and escape uh, from, from whatever it is we're doing is always about this desire to escape discomfort. So time management is pain management. It doesn't matter what guru's techniques you're using, what productivity you, book you read. If you don't know how to deal with that discomfort, whether it's too much news, too much food, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, it doesn't matter. Something is gonna take you off track unless you know how to deal with emotional discomfort. So um, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess for me, a lot of the times it's boredom or a feeling of insecurity. Um, I want to ask you, what are your triggers? What causes you to feel like you need to reach for your phone or distract yourself? Oh my goodness. I mean, I wrote this book for me more than anyone else because I was struggling with distraction in my own life. And uh, uh, I mean, you name it, I struggled with all of these uncomfortable internal triggers, whether, whether it was stress, fatigue, loneliness, uncertainty, boredom. Uh, you know, every day as a writer, when, it, when I write, uh, writing has never come easy for me. It's, I've written two bestsellers, countless articles. It's hard work, right? All I want to do is just, you know, go check the news or scroll Instagram or just do anything but do the hard work of writing uh, because I don't feel like it. I mean, that's the number one reason we get distracted from not doing what it is we say we're going to do, whether it's I didn't feel like going to the gym or I didn't feel like working on that big project. I didn't feel like finishing my homework. I didn't feel like it. It's about feelings. But the good news is that we can learn how to control that discomfort as I did. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. I wrote this book for me more than anyone else. And so my success metric was not how many copies of this book did I sell. It was, did I solve this problem for myself? And five years of research and writing, finally, I solved it for myself. And specifically with writing, because that's a task where you have to spend multiple hours focused in on one thing and it's so easy to get distracted if there's especially a pain point where you're at, you're at and you can't think about the next sentence what are some things that you did while you were writing to keep yourself focused yeah yeah so there's a few techniques i talk about in the book there's there's dozens of techniques in the book um, but it's important to, uh, to when, when we talk about internal triggers, what we want to do is to have a variety of different tools. And so let me just give you a few. There's many, many described in the book, but a few that I use almost daily uh, have to do with, with that, that come from acceptance and commitment therapy. By the way, I hate these self-help books that are all about, well, 
this worked for me personally, so it's going to work for everybody. Why? Because I say so. No, no, no. Not only does this need to work, but it also needs to be backed by peer-reviewed studies. So everything in the book, you'll see the book has over 30 pages of citations from peer-reviewed studies. Everything in the book is backed by good hard science. And so uh, one of the, the, the fields that I look into is called ex, uh, acceptance of commitment therapy. And acceptance of commitment therapy is all about recognizing those sources of discomfort uh, and, and learning to deal with them in the healthy rather than maladaptive or unhealthy manner. So one technique, um, that I use almost daily is called the 10 minute rule. And the 10 minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction, okay? Whether it's uh, scrolling your newsfeed, whether it's eating that piece of chocolate cake, whether it's smoking that cigarette, whatever the case might be, whatever it is that, you know, that, that distraction that takes you off track, that's you doing something that you yourself do not wanna do, you can give in to that distraction, but not right now. Okay, you can give into it in 10 minutes. So many times what I do is I just take out my phone and I set a timer for 10 minutes. I'll say, you know, set a timer for 10 minutes. I'll put it down. And my job is to just surf the urge. Surfing the urge is this term uh, that recognizes that internal triggers, that these uncomfortable emotional states, they're like waves, right? They crest and then they subside, even though it doesn't feel like that. When we are feeling loneliness or stress or anxiety or boredom, it feels like we're always going to feel that way. But of course, that's never the case. These uncomfortable emotional states are waves and we need to ride those emotional waves like surfers on a surfboard. So what you do is you just set a timer for 10 minutes and says, okay, I can give in to that distraction, but not right now, in 10 minutes. And all I do for those 10 minutes is to get curious about that sensation not contemptuous, okay, this is a really important point. Most people, when they feel the distraction, when they feel the temptation of checking email when they wanna work on a big project or that temptation to eat that chocolate cake or smoke the cigarette or whatever the case might be, whatever that distraction is, they beat themselves up, right? They get contemptuous, oh, I'm weak, I'm this, I'm that. We have this internal dialogue that we beat each other up like we're our own worst enemies, like we're our own bullies. And that only th makes things worse, why? Because the more we beat ourselves up, the more shame we feel, the worse we feel, and the more likely we are to seek emotional escape with, guess what? More distraction. So we don't want to be our, beat ourselves up. We don't want to be what we call shamers. We don't want to be blamers. Blamers, they don't blame themselves. They blame things outside of themselves, right? They say, oh, it's the technology. It's uh, uh, Donald Trump. It's what's happening in the news. It's this, it's that. It's everything outside themselves. Those are blamers. But of course, that's futile because you can't change those things, right? The distraction has always been with the human species. Plato talked about this problem 2,500 years ago. This is not a new problem. So blaming the world around you is not the solution. Shaming yourself is not the solution. You don't want to be a blamer or a shamer. You want to be what's called a claimer. A claimer claims responsibility not for how they feel. Okay, this is really important. You do not control your feelings. Many people don't understand this. You are not responsible for your urges. You are only responsible for how you respond to those urges, hence the term responsibility. So if you think about it, it's like asking someone to control the urge to sneeze. You cannot control the urge. You already have the urge. What you can do is what you decide to do with that urge. Are you gonna sneeze all over everyone and get them sick or do you take out a tissue and cover your face? right? That's the responsible thing to do. It's about how you respond to those urges. So you may feel 
stressed, anxious, lonely, bored, fatigued. Of course you will. And you can't try and fight that urge. What you can do is to decide how you will respond to that urge by claiming responsibility for it. Now, one, uh, one thought is to say, well, just abstain. Okay, go on a digital detox, right? Just stop doing that thing. And that doesn't work. And the reason it tends not to work, the reason strict abstinence doesn't work, it's, it's almost like when you um, uh, pull on a rubber band, okay? If you tell yourself, don't do something, right? You pull on it, you pull on the rubber band, pull, 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 pull. Eventually you can't pull anymore. What happens when you release it? It doesn't just stop where you pulled it from. No, it ricochets across the room. This is actually what modern science is, is discovering makes cigarettes so addictive. It's actually not the nicotine, okay? What it actually is, is this cycle of ruminating around, no, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't, 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 okay, fine, I'll do it. And when you give in to that temptation, it feels good to not have the temptation anymore. It's not the nicotine itself. The nicotine itself turns out, the nicotine withdrawals go out of the body in about three hours. You metabolize nicotine in about three hours. So every smoker, once every night, they experience withdrawal, right? What really makes cigarettes so addictive as any other addiction as well is this rumination around how you can't have something. And that rumination makes you want it more. So as opposed to telling yourself no, tell yourself not yet. Not yet. I can give in to that temptation. I can allow myself to get distracted, but not right now, in 10 minutes, right? Anybody can hold off on checking Facebook for just 10 minutes. And what you'll find is that over time, you begin to build that muscle. You begin to get better and better at this skill. And you say, wait a minute, I did it for 10 minutes. You know, let me try 12 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, problem solved. And, and that's kind of one of the biggest takeaways that I took from the book. But what I found was that those 10 minutes feel so long, especially when you're on a Netflix episode and it's saying, you know, three, two, one, onto the next episode and you feel, okay, if I click pause, those 10 minutes are, are a little rough. And oh, 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 I, wait, wait, I got to stop you right there. Too late. <laughs> you already lost. <laughs> okay. So yeah. one mantra that summarizes the book Indistractable it's that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Let me say that again. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That the human animal can do something that no other animal on the face of the earth can do. One of the things that makes us so special as a species is that we can see into the future with greater fidelity than any other animal, right? We can predict what is going to happen. So the fact that you know that Netflix has set up this attention grabbing technology in such a way that between episodes, how does every episode of a Netflix show end? Every single episode always ends with a cliffhanger. You know this, right? That's what keeps you hooked. <laughs> I know all their tips and tricks. I wrote the book hooked, <laughs> you know, right? I know all these tactics, they're good, they're not that good, right? So what can you do? For example, disable autoplay. Did you know that you can go into Netflix? It takes you 30 seconds. I didn't know that. And you can disable that countdown timer. Don't use it, right? 
you, you know, for example, that every episode ends with a cliffhanger. So let's say you like watching shows. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with watching shows on Netflix or playing video games or going on social media. But there's no, there's no reason we can't hack back knowing that they design these products to do this to us. So one thing that uh, some of my friends do is that they'll end an episode, not when the episode is designed to end, end it in the middle. So they set a timer so that 15 minutes into the episode, that's when they say, okay, that's it for today, right? Because they know if they watch the full 30 minutes, it's gonna end with a cliffhanger. And, and so that's, that's another thing you can do. So for, for me, for example, I actually even went a little bit more extreme. I don't watch anything that I don't know how much time is required to invest in it, right? And this came out of a very personal experience. So uh, back in, this would have been 2007, uh, this was before Netflix was a streaming service. This was back when Netflix delivered, remember those red envelopes that they would deliver to your door? Mm -hmm. So uh, we went on a ski trip to Tahoe and somebody brought the box set of the series 24. Did you happen to see 24 with Kiefer Sutherland? Yes, yes, okay, definitely. You know talking about, right? This was mm -hmm. one of these like really uh, hard to stop watching shows. It was designed with a cliffhanger at the end of every episode. And somebody said, hey, let's just watch an episode before we go out and you know, ha enjoy our day. And we sat there in the cabin and watched the entire goddamn season. <laughs> it was such <laughs> a freaking waste of time. Yeah. And we got totally distracted from what we said we were going to do, enjoy each other's company and actually get outside and enjoy Tahoe. And from then on, I decided no more, right? Like I'll watch movies because movies, I know exactly how long a movie will take. Okay, 90 minutes, an hour and a half. You know when you start a movie, how long it's going to take. I don't watch Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or The Crown or any of that stuff because it is designed to go on and on and on. And you know this, right? So I'm not saying everybody has to make this decision. Everybody has to be so extreme like, like I am. But we also can't complain about it right? Like you are well-informed. Everybody knows that this is how these products are designed. And so we don't have to get constantly fooled by them uh, into getting uh, distracted. Can I ask you, um, why are you so extreme about it? Why do you cho choose to be so, and why have you dedicated your life to being so focused? Or what's the reason behind that? Because controlling your attention is choosing your life that I really think that there are two types of people in the world. The world is bifurcating uh, increasingly so. People who will let their time and attention be manipulated by others and people who say to themselves, no, I decide how I spend my time. I decide how I uh, spend my attention. I decide how I spend my life. And I wanna be the kind of person who is indistractable. I mean, this is, to me, this is the skill of the century because the world is becoming a more distracting place. And so look, I'm not saying everybody has to be like me, right? Like I, I wrote this book for me because I wanted to figure out how to become indistractable. I think this is a superpower. There's nothing to say that you, there's not anything wrong with going through your life, having your attention and your time and your life being manipulated by others. If that's how you want to live, no problem. But for me, that's not the kind of life I want to live. I would much prefer to live a life that I decide how I spend my time versus somebody else. Because look, the fact of the matter is, if you don't decide for yourself, somebody will decide for you. Your boss, your kids, the news media, the politicians, the social networks, the video game companies, somebody is going to decide how you spend your time unless you make a conscious choice to live it according to your values.
And I, I think that's, at least with my peer group and people I know, that, that's kind of one of the major feelings, that major causes of anxiety because you feel you don't have control over anything. You get a call at 7.30 in the morning, 8.30 in the morning, but you had planned to go to the gym, let's say, and you don't have control over that time and you feel, you, you feel locked in. So I, I completely get where you're coming from. And I, I want to get into the point where you talk about hacking back and kind of, it's kind of a contrarian view right now because the social dilemma just launched and everyone's just attacking tech companies, but it's, it's the situation we have to learn how to hack against these kind of things. So one of the other major things that I took away from this book was the idea of distraction and the idea of distraction versus traction. Could right. you kind of go into that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So this is a really important point because uh, I don't think I properly understood what does distraction, what does this word even mean? Uh, and so I think it's really important to talk about it. And the best way to understand what is distraction is to understand what is the opposite of distraction. So most people, when you ask them, what is the opposite of distraction, they'll tell you it's focus. But that's not exactly true. That The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That if you look at the origin of the word, they both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you say you're going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you live the kind of life you want to live. The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that is further away from your values, anything that pulls you farther away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of distraction. So this is really, really important because I believe anything can be traction or distraction based on one word. And that one word is forethought. So if you plan time to go on social media, to play video games, to watch sports on TV, it doesn't matter if that is something you are doing according to your schedule and your values, not the tech companies, do it, enjoy it. I don't agree with the premise of the social dilemma that, oh my God, it's hijacking your brain and it's addicting everyone. Come on, that is so disempowering and so untrue. Really, there's so much we can do right now as opposed to waiting for the senators and congressmen and geniuses in Washington to do something about it. Why don't we do something about it right now? Why would we wait? And we can do something about it if we stop believing this BS that we're powerless. We are much more powerful than these tech companies if we understand that we are. If we just give up and say, oh, there's nothing I can do, they're addicting me, we don't even try. So anything can be traction and anything can be distraction, right? So you know, I would sit at my desk, get into work and say, okay, I am going to not procrastinate today. I'm gonna to work on that big project. I'm gonna stay focused. Nothing's gonna get in my way. Here I go. But first, let me check some email real quick. Right? Let me just scroll some Slack channels. Let me just uh, tick off a few to-dos on my to-do list that are kind of easy to do. And what I didn't realize is that that is the most dangerous form of distraction. The distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the urgent and easy work at the expense of the important and hard work. Because anything can be a distraction. So just because something is worky doesn't mean it's not a distraction. It's in fact a much more evil form of distraction because you don't even realize you're doing it. Right? If you're playing uh, Candy Crush at your desk, well, that's obviously a distraction. 
But if you're checking email when you said you'd work on that big project, even if it feels worky, you're still distracted. So that's a really important dichotomy. We have to understand the difference between traction is what you say you will do with your time. Distraction is everything else. And, and I love the idea of forethought and planning out your schedule so you know what you're doing with your time. But see what happens with me, and I, I, I know it happens with a lot of my friends, is that you say tomorrow at 7 a.m. I'm going to the gym or tomorrow at 3 p.m. I'm having this meeting. But you just, it gets to that time and you're like, oh, just, I just do not feel like it at all. Right. Well, yeah. what do you, does that happen to you? And well, it's in those like, it's like you're, do? you've read my, auto, my autobiography here. I mean, that would happen <laughs> to me all the time, but listen to what you just said. I just don't feel like it. What are we doing blaming technology? It's not the technology. We want to blame the technology, right? Because now there's a pusher, there's a dealer, right? If I call myself addicted, I don't have to do anything about it. But you just said for yourself, it's not Mark Zuckerberg that kept you from going to the gym. It's that you don't feel like it. Once we understand that, that the problem is our inability to deal with discomfort. It was that uncomfortable discomfort, the feeling of, I don't wanna go to the gym. I don't wanna do my work, right? That's what we have to realize. It's just a feeling. And there are all kinds of tactics that we can use to master those internal triggers. It's incredibly important. That is the very first step. So look, none of these strategies work in isolation. You have to do all four. Starting with the most important is mastering the internal triggers, right? So that when you don't feel like it, you have tools at your disposal so that you know what to do with that discomfort. That's the first step. The second step is to make time for traction. So is it in your calendar? I am going to the gym at 9 a.m. Is that in your calendar? You have to turn your values into time, right? So many of us, we say, oh, we value our health. But do you have a bedtime? Do you have time for exercise? Do you have time in your day for those things? Oh, we value our relationships. But do you have time for the most important people in your life? Is it in your schedule? Or do you just give them whatever scraps are left over? We say, oh, my work is very important to me. I know I have to work hard to excel at my career. But do you have time to think? at work or are you just reacting all day long? So we have to make time for those things to live out our values. And then the next step, the step number three, is to hack back the external triggers. So this is where we get down to the nitty gritty of how do we change our technology? How do we hack it back? You know, we, in the social dilemma, in you know, these tech critics will say, oh, you know, these tech companies are hacking our brains, they're hacking our attention. Okay, but who says we can't hack back, right? What's Mark Zuckerberg gonna do if you turn off those goddamn notification settings. Nothing, right? It's like that scene, you remember that scene in Indiana Jones where Indiana Jones goes to the bazaar and there's that guy dressed in all black and he's got those two big swords and he's like, ay, 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 ay. he's like throwing them in the air. It's very intimidating, it's very scary. And then what does Indiana Jones do? He, he, what is he, uh, what, he takes out his gun, bang, right? And that's us, right? We are Indiana Jones here. There's all these, scary algorithms and the computer is pointing to your brains and all the stuff that they tell you in the social dilemma, very, very scary. And what do we do? Bang, turn off the notifications, <laughs> right? There's nothing that they can do to turn them back on, right? That's hacking back, but that's kindergarten stuff. You don't need to buy a book to tell you to do that. That's easy stuff. How do we hack back 
our computers? How do we hack back meetings? Oh my God, how much time do we spend in stupid, distracting meetings? What about email? What about um, our, our children or our roommates or our spouses? All these things can be sources of external triggers that can lead towards distraction. I tell you how to, ha how to hack back each and every one of these external triggers. So that's step number three. Step number four is to prevent distraction with pacts. Pacts are when we make a pre-commitment. We make some kind of promise with another person to, or sometimes with ourselves, sometimes with the technology, to make sure as the last line of defense, right? That even when we have implemented the other three tactics of mastering internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back, as the firewall to prevent us from getting distracted, we make a promise, we make a pact, a pre-commitment that gets us to make sure we do what we say we're going to do so we don't get distracted. So for example, uh, I also had a problem with, I didn't feel like going to the gym. But one of my values was to take care of my physical health. So I mastered the internal triggers around, uh, uh, around going to the gym. I've made time for it in my calendar. I hacked back the external triggers, but it was still difficult. So here's what I did. I made what's called a price pact. And the price, a price pact is when you have some kind of financial disincentive to getting distracted. And again, this is a last line of defense. Do not do what I'm about to tell you first. You have to do the other steps, the other three steps first, and then do this as the last line of defense, the last resort. Here's what I did. In my closet, there's a calendar. And on that calendar is taped to today's date, a fresh, crisp $100 bill. Now above the calendar, there's a shelf and there's a Bic lighter. And that big lighter is to be used if I don't do what I say I'm going to do. This is called the burn or burn technique, which says I can either burn some calories by going to the gym, walking around the block, doing some push-ups, whatever I define for myself is the activity I want to do for the day, or I have to burn the $100 bill. Now, I'm 42 years old. I'm in the best shape of my life, and I have never burned the $100 bill. You know why? Because I do the goddamn work, right? I made that promise with myself and I say to myself, I'm not going to burn that money. Let me just go, you know, walk a mile. Let me go do some push-ups. Let me go to the gym because I made this commitment to myself. I don't have to burn the money. It's the threat of that promise, that pact I made to myself that is the defense, the last line of defense, the firewall that prevents me from not doing what I say I'm going to do. Now that's just one of many, many other techniques. Yeah, and, and it truly is like, like you say, in the book, there are thousands, so many different techniques. But my, my question when I, I read some of this productivity stuff and I, you know, listen to gurus talk about it, my only thing is sometimes maybe your body is telling you, look, you, you shouldn't work out. And, and there's the dichotomy, right? Like maybe you've been overworked at work and maybe you shouldn't take that last meeting because actually it may not be good for your health, you know? my thought is when do you know when it's like, okay, I've reached my limit and I should probably just shut off for the day. Yeah. So first of all, we have to resist what about ism. What about ism is when an expert like myself spends years researching this and then we tell what we've learned to folks and they say, yeah, but here's the why it's not going to work for me as if somehow that one individual is unique. <laughs> You're not that special. <laughs> no offense. I've heard it a million times. And the idea here is that we don't prescribe super rigid tasks. We prescribe how we want to spend our time. Okay. So we don't say, oh my God, I need to run five miles every single day. 
if you're not conditioned to do that, right? If you learn over time that you're not ready for that, okay, that's fine. But can you do something? Let's say you're run down for the day. You're sore from yesterday's workout. Well, I, yeah, I, I totally agree. My, can, my, my criteria is not go to the gym uh, seven days a week. It's walk a mile or do 20 push-ups or something that, but this is, I'm not saying everybody has to do exactly what I do. What I'm saying is to learn over time, right? This isn't something that gets you to perfection. Let, let's go back to the definition of what does it mean to be indistractable. Being indistractable does not mean you never get distracted. That's impossible. It means you're the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. So the difference between a distractible person and an indistractable person is that an indistractable person understands why they got distracted and they make sure it doesn't happen again. So Puello Coelho had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. Okay, you know what, Armin? You didn't work out today and you said you would. All right, no problem. It happened once. How are we gonna make sure it doesn't happen tomorrow? A distractible person says, oh, you see? This book doesn't work. <laughs> An indistractable person says, all right, why did I get distracted? Was it an external trigger, an internal trigger, or a planning problem? There are only three potential reasons for every single distraction. So how do I make sure I do what I say I'm going to do in the future? Was it an external trigger? Was it an internal trigger? Was it a planning problem? How can I make sure that I don't succumb to the same problem again and again and again. How many times can we say, oh my gosh, Facebook distracted me? Okay, once, twice. Eventually, don't you wake up and say, you know what? I think I'm gonna do something about this. <laughs> and I, I love the idea of it being a planning problem because for example, if you've planned five workouts in a row and you, like you said, you're not conditioned for it, that's, that's your fault. You shouldn't have done that. You exactly, and you learn from walk. it. Yeah. So over time, you'll get to a point where you've optimized based on yourself. So I, I really love that idea. I'm going to start implementing that from today. But I, I want to ask you about another thing is you talked about you're, you're in the best shape of your life. And I, and I can see that. And you've, <laughs> you, you've talked about in, in other interviews how you were obese. And I truly, it's, it's hard for me to imagine you being obese. And I just, could you, could you go into that story a little bit and how you kind of hacked back there to start working out and getting such great shape. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it actually came. F I think that that's the source of why I study what I study, uh, and, and my fascination with this field. Uh, so I was an, I was clinically obese as a kid. I weighed as much as I do now as, as a 42 year old man when I was only 11 years old. So uh, I was I was pretty big. I remember my mom took me to the doctor and the doctor showed me this chart and he said, okay, here's normal weight, here's overweight, and here's you. You're in this red zone, obese. And uh, I went to fat camp, the whole nine yards. Like it was it was tough. And I, I grew up in uh, Florida where. Um, you know, after school, the, the activity in my little condo neighborhood uh, was we had a community pool that, you know, the, a bunch of condos shared. And um, I would go to the community pool with all the other kids in the neighborhood. And I would be the one kid that would never take their shirt off. I would never want anyone to see my rolls. Um, so it was, it, was, it was rough for me. And I remember being really, as I got older, um, I remember like, you know, trying to figure out why did food control me? Why did I feel like I was powerless 
uh, to resist eating. Uh, I was never athletic uh, because I was overweight. So I wasn't very good at sports. And so that only made things worse, right? And at first I blamed the food, right? Uh, McDonald's was making me fat. And I, I wish that was the case, but it wasn't. You know, I was overweight, as is the case with many people who struggle with, with obesity. Um, I wasn't eating because I was hungry. I was eating because I was bored. I was eating because I was sad. I was eating because I was ashamed of how much I had eaten. I was eating my feelings. And that's a very common condition for people who are, are struggling with their weight. I still have to watch this Till this day, I will, you know, if I don't, if I, if I'm not mindful about this, I will uh, eat for emotional reasons, not because I'm actually hungry. I wonder how many people actually feel hunger on a daily basis. Now, what we do feel is the fear of hungry, uh, of hunger, right? Like, oh, eat something so you're not hungry later, as if our bodies don't come built in with a mechanism to tell us when it's time to eat. No, no, no. Let's eat because we are afraid we might be hungry in the future. That's why most people eat, because they're on a schedule or because they fear being hungry, um, as if that's such a terrible thing. So it wasn't until I realized why I was overeating that I could do something about it. Uh, and it's very similar to the, the root causes of, of all distraction. It's back to those internal triggers. And then, and then the story of, well, how did I get back into, or uh, how did I get into shape for the first time? I was never in shape my entire life, hated athletics, hated running. I just like, I just never got it. Like my friends would, you know, run a marathon. So, oh, I have a runner's high. What are you talking about? It's miserable. Like there's nothing fun about exercise. Until a few years ago when I decided, look, it's one of my values. One of my values is to take care of my physical health. And look, the studies are pretty conclusive that we need to do some kind of physical activity every day. It's a good, you know, with people who are physically active, live longer, healthier lives. And so I want that. And uh, so I started looking for how I could implement that in my life. And so I, I developed, um, uh, well, I should say I researched many of these techniques that um, helped me do what I said I was going to do. Because the problem, and I think this is across the board, a problem with all kinds of, of, of things that we don't do, it's no longer about not knowing what to do. We think it is, right? Oh, I need to buy the latest diet book so it can tell me the same thing that every other diet book that's ever been written says, which is uh, eat the right stuff and exercise. That's pretty much every diet book, right? Eat, eat good food, right? Eat the right stuff, don't eat too much of it, and exercise. That's pretty much it. Does anybody not know that? Does anybody not know that chocolate cake is not as healthy as a salad, as a healthy salad? We all know this. Why don't we eat right? Does anybody not know we should get proper rest, that we should exercise? We all know this. Does anybody not know that to be better at your job, you have to do the work, especially the hard stuff that other people don't want to do? Does anybody not know that to have quality relationships with the people we love, we have to be fully present with them? We all know this. So the problem is no longer that we don't know what to do. The problem is we don't know how to stop getting in our own way. We don't know how to stop getting distracted. And I think um, it, it kind of also goes back to improper planning because I think when someone's like, let's say 30 years old and you've never worked out, if you think you're just gonna walk into the gym and figure out exactly what you need to do there, it, it's, it's tough, right? You can go on the treadmill, but then you, you don't really know what's going on. But if you planned properly and said, hey, I'm going to get a personal trainer or I'm, this is the exact routine that I'm going to do before I get to the gym, it's more likely that you'll have less tension when you get there because there's intention going into it. And 
So I, I really do like this idea, but I, I want to ask you, let's say you're, you're losing the weight and this doesn't necessarily have to be a personal story, but let's say you do eat that chocolate cake. What's, what's the self-talk you can say to yourself, you know, in that moment, should you be harsh or should you be like, look, it's okay. Tomorrow we'll do a little bit better. Yeah. The, the best, uh, way the, the best technique is to talk to yourself the way you would talk to a good friend right so a good friend wouldn't tell you oh you're such a loser you have no self-control you have no willpower a good friend wouldn't tell you that i right? gotta find new friends <laughs> but you wouldn't be their friend for long if they talked to you <laughs> like that um and, and, but a lot of us beat ourselves up that's what i used to do and so what we want to do is to cultivate self-compassion we know the people who are more self-compassionate are much more likely to achieve their long-term goals. And so if we follow this rule of how would we talk to a good friend who was going through this challenge, and then most importantly, do something today to prevent it from happening tomorrow. Okay, it happened. Oops, we all make mistakes. Uh, but again, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So you ate the chocolate cake. How do you make sure that you live out your intentions? Which by the way, don't need to include, ooh, chocolate cake is always bad. There's nothing wrong with saying, I want to eat the chocolate cake as long as you do it with forethought. Don't do it in the moment when you can't control your urges. Plan ahead. You know, if you wait till the last minute, you're going to lose. If the chocolate cake is on the fork on its way to your mouth, you're going to eat it. If the cigarette is lit in your hand, you're going to smoke it. If the Netflix countdown timer is already running, you're going to watch the next show. If you sleep next to your cell phone every night, of course, it's the first thing you're going to reach for in the morning. So what can you do today to prevent the same distractions from happening tomorrow? Mm, that, that's, that's so good. And I, I heard you talk about an interview once about the idea of progressive extremism, where you start small and then you keep going to where, to where you say, I don't eat meat or I don't eat cake or I don't do this. And that kind of becomes your identity. So that's another huge takeaway from you. And I, I want to get into some quick fire questions and sure. near I, when we were emailing back and forth, I, this was a question that was burning in my mind because yeah. I would see an email at um, about 4 PM my time, which is around 4 AM your time. And I was thinking, when, when does this dude sleep? <laughs> what are oh, you I use, of? I use a program that says, okay. so I use a program Ooh. called superhuman and uh, it's an email app that you can essentially um, make it so that things deliver uh, later on. This is a technique I talk about in the book where the idea is you want to stop the ping pong email game. So the ping pong email game is I send, you send, I send, you send, I send, you send. And instead what you want to do is to slow it down because the more emails you send, the more emails you will receive. So many times what I'll do is say, you know, send this email two days from now. So it's out of my inbox. I don't have to see it anymore but then it's held until the time I say to send it. Wow, okay, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I just saw something on your hand. I wanted, is that an aura ring? Did you use an aura yeah. ring? Yeah. It, what do you think about it? I've been thinking about getting it. A lot of people have been telling me about it. Is it useful for you? It's, it's okay. Um, it has diminishing returns over time that once you learn uh, 
kind of what it does. So I, I buy like, or I am, I'm sent like every fitness device and every behavior change app, uh, that, you know, the makers try and get me to check out. Um, and most of them I don't use, <laughs> to be honest. The only, the only stuff I wear is the Aura Ring and the Apple Watch. Um, I used to wear the Nokia watch, which was really good too, but the new version of the Apple watch, I think is, is, uh, is really stepped up the game. Um, so I, I got that one. The aura ring is, uh, here's what I like about the aura ring. We know that sleep, uh, it's mostly a sleep tracking device, but you know, the Apple watch does sleep tracking too, but it's, it has, it has a, a, a finer level of detail, um, than, than the Apple watch does, but, but it also does some, some things the Apple Watch can't do. So for example, it monitors your temperature. Um, so that tells you, you know, if you, for, for example, these days with COVID, that's one of the warning signs that you're, you know, uh, getting COVID is if your temperature goes up and your respiratory rate uh, changes. So there are some things, some other benefits. I will say that the Apple Watch has, has caught up uh, since I got the Aura Ring. I don't, I, I'll be totally honest with you. I'm not sure I would get one today. <laughs> I would probably just get the Apple Watch. Thank you. I think you've saved me a lot of money. <laughs> and sorry, there are more very random questions, but another random thought that came into my head was, wh why do you make your books so yellow? Oh, because uh, yellow is the most, uh, uh, most attention capturing color. Uh, mm. When you look at caution signs on the street, uh, street signs, the yellow ones are the, the caution signs, the really important, you know, construction work ahead. Uh, those are, are yellow. Nice. And the final very random quick fire question is, do you drink coffee? And if so, how many cups of coffee do you have a day? Oh, I love coffee. I probably have uh, four cups of coffee at least a day, but they're all decaf. Nice. Well, not, and well, that's not true. Sometimes I do have, if I do have caffeinated coffee, I won't have more than one and I won't have it after 4 p.m. But most of the coffee I drink, when I make it at home, I always drink decaf at home because I can't taste the difference. So why have the caffeine? Yes, and why not have the placebo? Because when I, when I have decaf coffee, it still hypes me up somehow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> placebos are real, man. Placebos work wonders. <laughs> Definitely. Nir, I, I just want to ask one final thing. Where yeah. can people find out more about you? Sure. So my website is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name. So that's N-I-R-andfar.com. And there's an 80-page workbook. If you go to nearandfar.com, uh, whether you buy the book, Indistractable or not, there's an 80-page workbook that can help you on your journey to becoming indistractable. It's there free. Uh, we couldn't fit it into the final edition of the book, so we decided to, to give it away for free. You can get that at nearandfar.com. Amazing. And thank you so much, Nir. I really appreciate the time for you coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Amazing. And thank you to everybody for tuning into this podcast. If you have any questions, make sure to leave them in the comments section below and I'll send them over to Nir. And if he has the time, we'll get back to you. See you guys in the next one.